I'm Emily. And I'm Hannah. We are best friends and dietitians. We have a goal of challenging nutrition misinformation and fitness trends with an evidence-based approach. Each episode, we will dish up our thoughts about the latest facts on a popular health-related topic. We're the Upbeat Dietitians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Upbeat Dietitians podcast. Today, we are joined by special guest Jamie Mills. Jamie is a registered dietitian nutritionist who specializes in weight loss surgery and bariatric coaching. Um, Jamie is not just a bariatric dietitian, but a weight loss surgery patient herself. In 2017, after years of struggling with her own weight, she finally decided to have the vertical sleeve gastrectomy. And since then, she has lost and maintained over 100 pounds. There are so many myths and misconceptions around weight loss surgery, with many assuming it is somehow the easy way out or it's cheating. However, nothing could be further from the truth. In order to be successful after weight loss surgery, so many habits and lifestyle changes need to be made. Jamie helps women navigate post-op life so that they can truly change their habits for the long haul and live their healthiest and happiest lives. So be sure to enjoy this episode. We're excited to share it with you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Upbeat Dietitians. Hello, everyone. Today, we are joined by another very exciting guest, Jamie Mills, our now specialty bariatric dietitian on the pod. We've never had anyone on to discuss bariatric surgery or really anything about it. So we are so excited for today's episode. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm absolutely honored to be your first guest speaker to talk about bariatric surgery. That's all of what I do. So really excited. (laughs) We are too. Perfect. But we like starting it right off out of the gate. We like hearing kind of about what your day in life looks like. Kind of tell us a little bit about what you like to do for fun, your previous education. Just kind of just share whatever you like about yourself. <laughs> sure. So again, my name is Jamie. Um, I'm the sleeved dietitian on Instagram and I specialize in bariatric surgery. Um, I, I feel like I have a little bit of a unique story. So I guess I'll start by sharing that. Um, I'm a registered dietitian. I went to school to be a dietitian. I uh, graduated and passed my RD exam in 2018. And I also had bariatric surgery. So my Instagram handle, the sleeve dietitian, a lot of people think it's referring to my sleeve of tattoos, but that is not actually it. It's referring to my gastric sleeve surgery that I had in 2017. So I struggled with my weight my entire life. I was diagnosed with PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome when I was 14. And in high school, I was somewhere between 270 and 290 pounds, give or take. And I just struggled a lot. Um, My own struggles with my weight and health is what inspired me to go to school to be a dietitian. A lot of people think I became a dietitian after I had my weight loss surgery, but that's not quite true. Um, I was in my dietetic internship year, the year I decided to have weight loss surgery. So you know what, in typical dietitian style, like let's just take on all the hard things at once. (laughs) Why not? Hardest year of my life, might as well add a major life-changing surgery to that. Um, But it was through all of my struggles with my own health and my own nutrition that I realized like, 
okay, I've done everything within my capacity to try and get healthy and to try and lose weight and, you know, to manage my PCOS symptoms. And to the point where I'd even gone to school and had my degree in nutrition, it's like, it's not that I didn't know what to do or wasn't working hard enough to try and achieve my goals. I just really, truly needed something else. So it was a really hard decision for me to make because there's a lot of stigma around bariatric surgery, which we can talk about. Um, it, it felt almost at the time, like shameful, like, gosh, here I am. I'm supposed to be helping other people get healthy, you know, in the hospital, doing my consults and going to educate people on weight loss. And here I am struggling myself. Um, so it was a really hard, like internal decision, but it was the best decision I could have made. So in December of 2017, I had two weeks off for winter break from my dietetic internship. And I timed it just right that that's when I had my surgery to recover. <laughs> um, oh and in 2018, in the, I think it was June or July, I passed my RD exam. So I was about six months, give or take out from weight loss surgery when I passed the RD exam. And I went right into working a full-time clinical job. I was the full-time dietitian at a long-term care facility in their rehab unit. And this whole time, I had been very active on Instagram for my own personal benefit. I hadn't really shared that I had weight loss, or I'm sorry, that I was a dietitian. I was just there for the purpose of gaining support throughout my own weight loss surgery journey because it felt very isolating. It felt very alone. It felt like I didn't understand like anyone else had gone through it. So I was really in the bariatric space on Instagram just for my own personal connections and meeting people and making friends and gaining the support that I really personally needed. And I always knew I wanted to coach people one-on-one -on -one and help people with their habits. And I started to share on Instagram, like, Hey, like I'm actually like a dietitian. Like, yeah, I had weight loss surgery, but like I have these credentials and a lot of people were like, Oh my goodness, can you help me? Or, Oh, wow. Like you've been through this too. Like you understand, like I felt like a different type of connection with the people who were looking for the help that I could offer. Um, so in 2019, I got my LLC and I started doing my own nutrition coaching. And now that's what I do full time is I help other women, both pre and post-op from weight loss surgery, kind of go through the process. And most importantly, understand the habits. <laughs> There's this huge misconception that you have weight loss surgery because you're taking some kind of easy way out, or it's this weird, like cheated system. And you just magically lose all your weight and everything's fine. And that it could not be further from the truth. There's so many habits that need to be made and changed. So that's what I help other people do now. Oh, that is such an amazing story. It's okay. I'll kind of clarify. I work in bariatrics currently and patients ask me all the time, like, how can you understand? Like you've never had to struggle with this. And to their point, they're totally right. So I can only imagine how that is just such a great connection you could make with clients when they know that you've been through it yourself and you like can like at a very deep level understand what they're going through more than someone like me who knows the education. Like I have the RD credentials and I have been going through a couple of years to kind of like learn about bariatric surgery, but I've never had it. And so I don't quite know the nitty gritty that perhaps you can probably provide to your patients and clients, which is so cool. I think also, yeah, because... And I get it because I've been at the receiving end of that patient chair. So I see things from both points of view. Like I understand like the education that needs to be given from the dietitian perspective, but I also know how it feels to be on that receiving end of it. And you do not have to go through this process to be an amazing bariatric dietitian and to give like so much support and understanding, but it is, there is something to be said for actually knowing what it's like. 
Um, I know there, there's a lot of shame around it because you feel like you should be able to lose weight on your own, or you feel like you should be able to get a handle on it. And whether you are actually being judged or not is like a case by case basis. But as someone who is living with such extreme obesity, you feel judged regardless. So even if you have the most supportive dietitian in the world, sitting across the table from her telling you, Hey, you can't eat anything other than a quarter cup of protein for the next year. It just, it's hard. (laughs) Um, I will say, I think along with understanding and the empathy that I have, because I've been there, I do have this extra element of tough love (laughs) that I think really resonates where I'm like, listen, I know it's hard. I get it. I've been there, but we got to do it. And this is why. (laughs) So I think my tough love that I give is sometimes a bit better received Cause they're like, okay, Jamie, touche. You, you did this too. All right. I feel like with that population, what I've seen tough love is often really well received. That's the right word. Really well received. And a lot of people that get surgery. So I think that's another awesome trait that I'm sure they appreciate very much. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. And I always tell like my clients, like, listen, I want you to feel as comfortable as possible with me. Like there is nothing you could say to me or tell me that like you do, or you eat, or you have habit wise that I have not seen or done myself. <laughs> like there's nothing you could share with me that would horrify me. So let's just lay it all on the table so that we can start to figure out what we need to tackle. Yeah. And that's usually how I open up. I'm like, listen, there is no need to hide anything. Like if you struggle with something, I want to know about it so I can help you with it. I think it's also so cool because I know that um, at least a lot of the patients I see, I don't work with weight management, but I, I've seen like individuals where they've had the surgery and then they didn't really have a high level of support after they didn't really have a direction to kind of go in. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like, it felt very much almost like a quick fix where it was like, they weren't really provided with a lot of support before they had the surgery and then they didn't really know what to do after. 100%. That is... <laughs> Honestly, I think that's the reason right there that I am in business and do what I do because I do provide support pre-op. I don't do the typical counseling. So when you have weight loss surgery, at least in the United States, especially if you're going through insurance, there's usually an approval process. There's usually somewhere between three to six plus months of pre-operative counseling where you have, I know for my pre-operative counseling, I had to go through 27 different appointments between seeing the surgeon, getting blood work, going to a psychologist, going to my cardiology appointment, getting my EKG, my endoscopy. I had six consecutive months with my dietitian, um, which they tried to like wave for me because they're like, this girl, like, it's not that she, she, there's no like knowledge deficit here, but the insurance company didn't care. They're like, nope, you're going to meet with your dietitian too, Um, which I did happily. And she was amazing. Um, So there's, it's a long preoperative process. You have to check a lot of boxes. You have to make sure that you really understand the post-op diet, not just for the purpose of the weight loss you're hoping to achieve, but for the true like medical potential consequences that would come along with you not following it. Um, whether that's, you know, risk for malnutrition, if you're not hitting your protein needs or taking your vitamins or potentially hurting yourself, if you're not following the food stages, like the soft foods. Um, so it's, it's very intense, but what happens is, you know, you get approved for surgery. You're like, yay, like I get to have my surgery. You get your surgery date. Usually at the surgical centers, you have like some kind of binder or pamphlet of all the education they've given you. You have your surgery. And then it's like, okay, we have your stomach now. Good luck. And it doesn't like mean to be that way. And I don't even fault like the surgical centers for that. It's just the way the system is where it's like, okay, well, you've been through this counseling. You have your surgery. You have your instructions. Now we'll see you at three months. We'll see you at six months and we'll see you at a year. And every year we'll just keep doing blood work. But 
the, the missing like piece of this, in my opinion, is the support. And I always say it to my clients and to, you know, my audience, and I'm here to try and provide you the support that I did not have. I found myself just fumbling through Instagram to try and make connections and find people who are going through it because I felt so misunderstood and alone. And there's this huge emotional struggle that comes with weight loss surgery because there's almost like a grieving process. It sounds silly, but like you're grieving food or at least the way you used to eat it. Cause mo- not everyone, but a lot of people who have weight loss surgery do struggle with emotional eating or coping with food. Um, you know, you take that all away. How do you cope? How do you, you know, find new habits? How do you even begin to implement new habits? And I remember thinking like, gosh, I am a registered dietitian. I've been to school for this and I'm still struggling so much with finding the support and accountability to hit my goals. How in the heck do people who don't have this education even understand the diet? How do people who don't have this background, like really grasp like the importance of like vitamins and why we need to take them? Because I truly believe that a big piece of this is not just the support and the accountability and some of the, like, you know, the emotional support, like that's huge too. But oftentimes I feel like as bariatric patients, and I don't know like what your take is on this because you are a bariatric dietitian, but I feel like the nutrition education is kind of baseline. It's like, here is the diet. Here's what you have to follow. And a lot of times patients also receive that as just kind of being told what to do and not why. And I'm a huge advocate for if we're going to make really conscious, empowered choices for ourselves on this journey where we're changing habits, you have to understand the nutrition education. It's huge. And, you know, we are very smart people and women going through this surgery I think that really in-depth nutrition education should be given and often isn't. It's like, you can't have that. Okay, well, why? I think the why we have to change things is the other missing piece because it's really hard to make choices that feel good for yourself if you don't even know why you're making them. So that's another piece of what I'm really, you know, a strong advocate for is like, let's give people really great nutrition education so that when they're presented with a choice, they feel confident in the one that they're making for themselves. And that's how we start to rebuild the whole habits. Yes, you're so right. Because some of the guidelines are seemingly very random, like, okay, Mm -hmm. no carbonation, but like, like you said, why, like, what's the purpose behind that? And like, is that even true for everybody? Maybe not. Um, it kind of just depends. Like you said, we have your stomach. Okay. Good luck. Just go eat less. Like it's so Mm -hmm. much more intense than that. And there's, there's so much fear as a bariatric patient, like, oh my God, am I going to fail? I failed at every diet before, or am I going to mess this up? There's this huge like misconception of I'm going to stretch my pouch out and ruin it, which is actually very challenging to do. It's not as common as people assume. Um, But sometimes you just need the reassurance, like, yeah, girl, you're doing a great job because if you don't have any sort of feedback, it's like, well, is this right? I don't know. And you're, it's not even just learning new habits. It's relearning your body, whether you've had gastric bypass or the vertical sleeve gastrectomy and I can get into like all the different surgeries if you want me to but you know it doesn't really matter exactly which surgical procedure you've had you're relearning hunger and full signals and for so many people who have been through bariatric surgery hunger and full signals are so greatly skewed before it's you feel very out of touch with that so suddenly your anatomy has changed which does have psychological impacts and emotional impacts but also very realistically like okay, is this, is this what full feels like? Is that, is that enough food? Is that, is that too much? Like it's very overwhelming. And there's, again, there's just a lot of, um, myths and stigmas around surgery that I think exacerbate that fear and anxiety. 
Yes, 100%, 100%. Well, I like how you brought up the different types. Let's get more into like what the heck the surgery actually is for okay. listeners who are clicking, but don't actually know and just heard our whole spiel about why it's this, that, and the other. Um, so Jamie, tell us what bariatric surgery is, who can benefit and how to find out if it's a good fit for anyone who's listening. So there are multiple different types of bariatric surgeries. And even if, as I sit here and list them, I'm sure I'll miss a couple. So if you're listening to this and I missed your surgery, please don't take offense. There's just, there's a lot, it's come a long way. So um, I have the vertical sleeve gastrectomy, which is the acronym is VSG, which with that surgical procedure, they remove 80 to 85% of your stomach. So you are left with only about 15% of your stomach. Um, there's this misconception that it's not as like permanent as gastric bypass, but it is, it is a very permanent procedure. Um, and it is as equally as invasive as the others. Gastric bypass is when they, um, like reroute your intestines essentially so that you are completely bypassing your stomach and they create a little pouch that's usually about the size of an egg. People with gastric bypass tend to have a little bit more restriction in terms of what they can eat. Um, people with gastric bypass are also a bit more prone to dumping syndrome, which happens when you eat too much sugar or fat, not even too much. It's just depending on the person, it can affect you differently and can make you very sick. Myth right here. People who have other surgical procedures can also get dumping syndrome because I am one of the very lucky VSG patients who gets it quite often. So just saying, <laughs> um, there's other procedures too. There's the duodenal switch, um, Duodenal switches where they also do some rerouting and there's more malabsorption. A lot of people will have staged procedures where they might have a vertical sleeve gastrectomy first. And then knowingly after they lose so much weight, they might have the duodenal switch after to complete their weight loss. Um, there's also got a lap band. Lap band is not done quite as often. And this is the one that is quote, like less permanent because you can take the band out. It's like, um, they put like a foreign like band around your stomach and they pump it with fluid that creates this restriction. Um, there are pretty high complications with that. So I don't know of too many surgical centers that opt to do that one anymore. Um, and one of the newer ones is the gastric balloon, which is not permanent either. I think it goes in for about eight months. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but they put a balloon in your stomach and they inflate it, which also causes this restriction and limits portions. Um, as far as who can benefit from it, there's this huge misconception that you have to be, you know, five, six, 700 pounds to have weight loss surgery. I do think some, you know, reality TV shows play into that, but so many more people can benefit from it than we realize. So in order to qualify for bariatric surgery, again, it's different from country to country. It's also different if you are having insurance pay for it or not, but in the United States, if insurance is paying for it, Typically, you have to have a BMI of 40 or higher or a BMI of 35 or higher with, I think, at least two medical comorbidities. So comorbidities would be things like sleep apnea, high blood pressure, diabetes, other medical conditions that have been correlated or caused by your weight. So it, it's, it is based off of the BMI, but also the other factors as well. And it's, it's interesting because I think we think we have to have such a huge like BMI or be, you know, a certain weight on the scale to qualify. And that's not true. Um, was there any other questions in there? I forgot to answer. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. No, this is perfect. This is perfect. Okay. Everything you're saying is kind of what I like talk about every day too in my, my day job, like the BMI requirements, the comorbidities, the different sizes. And actually to kind of give a more personal take too, um, 
our surgeon only goes up to a certain BMI. So he won't touch anyone with a BMI over 60. So there are even some centers that have like a maximum BMI too. And certain centers, you know, have different requirements as far as, again, the whole concept and misconception that you just want an easy way out. And this is like a, like a cop-out of some kind is not true. Usually if you're at such a high BMI, your surgical center does want to see you lose weight prior to make sure that your surgery is safer and to show that you can commit to following the plan and the diet. Um, and that will look different from center to center. I know, um, one of the things that they also do at most centers is they'll do right before surgery. So right before you're going to surgery, there's usually some kind of two week pre-op liquid diet. There's usually some variation. Some centers allow certain foods. Some do not. My surgical center was three shakes a day and two cups of like plain veggies for two weeks, which during my clinical internship year, that was really not fun. Um, it gave me an extra layer of empathy for all of my inpatient patients who were on like NPO and like liquid diets. I was like, oh, I feel for you. Um, <laughs> but um, I know at my weight loss surgery center, if you had a BMI of 50 or higher, you had to do three weeks of the pre-op diet as opposed to two. And the main reason that they want you to do this liquid diet for two weeks before surgery is to shrink your liver. So for anyone listening, your liver is where we store glycogen, which is like stored sugar or glucose. And we want to use up all of that energy, which is why you're on a very low carb, very low sugar liquid diet to use up those glycogen stores so that you then shrink your liver. So for people who have BMIs of 50 and higher, they need usually some extra time to ensure that they are shrinking their liver so that it is a safer procedure for them. Yep. We do that at my center. We do a two-week pre-op diet and we do a, allow more solid foods. So we have like the three shakes. We allow, I think one or two proteins like chicken, beef, whatever, um, veggies and like a milk or yogurt serving too, but it is either way, very restrictive. That's why it's only for two or three weeks. I will say, I think for myself, well, this whole journey has been hard. I can't say that, but one of the hardest parts of this journey was the pre-op diet. It was the first time I think it really hit me how much of an emotional eater I was <laughs> because a lot of the times on the diet, I wasn't particularly hungry. You know, I would, I was again in my clinical rotations, I would get to the hospital at like five 36 in the morning. I had to be there super early and I would have my protein shake in the morning. Then I'd have my protein shake at lunch and maybe like a cup of raw veggies or something. And then I would go home after like 12 hours at the hospital and I wasn't even hungry. I was just so tired and emotional. Like I just wanted to sit there with a meal and relax and eat my meal. And I was like, damn it, I have another shake to look forward to. And there were many times I would come home and just cry because I was emotional. And that was the first start of like really realizing how often I gravitated towards food for coping when I was emotional or stressed. And that was really hard for me. Um, but I can look back and say, I'm really grateful for it because had I not done the pre-op liquid diet, some centers don't do it. I don't know how well I would have done immediately after surgery. So immediately after surgery at my center, I was on liquids for three weeks. So I had five full weeks on liquids. It was a really great time. Um, <laughs> I also had my surgery like four days before Christmas. It was December 19th. Um, so, and my birthday is January 10th. So I was just, just cleared for purees. It was a really great, great couple of months. <laughs> um, oh that was a good time. <laughs> I was like, yay. Mm, <laughs> um, there was crazy. There was, <laughs> there was one night we, in my, 
my now husband, we were dating at the time was very like conscious of like eating. And like, I remember one time he came to my house during that and he like ate his meal in the car and before he came in, which was very considerate. But there was one day it was around Christmas time and we were both sitting at the dinner table and he had his meal and I had my bowl of like bone broth because you could have like clear broths. And I just started like crying and he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm just so sick of chicken broth. Like I don't want to drink it anymore. So like that was definitely, it was emotionally taxing. Mm-hmm. I was not particularly hungry. Like I said, I had my protein and my shakes and my meals. It was just such an adjustment. But I do, one of the things I say a lot to my audience and to the people who are in my programs is your pre and your post-op diet, it's not a suggestion. <laughs> you absolutely have to follow it for like your safety. And I think that's the biggest piece, which is why I'm very grateful my center did the pre-op diet the way they did because- I don't know how mentally I would have been prepared for being on liquids once it was absolutely crucial after surgery because of those risks. I'm learning so much. I do not know a lot about bariatric besides undergrad. So this is very well, we very spent educational like, for me. We spent like two days probably learning about it in undergrad and that's yeah. it. So when I like, st- this is my very first job out of college was becoming a weight management and bariatric dietitian. So I had to learn pretty much everything about pre-op, post-op, all of that. Like we don't learn that in school very much. No. And I know, I hope, again, you can cut this out if you want. I hope this isn't like taboo to bring up, but you know, I think it's very well known at this point that the field of dietetics is a little bit divided between quote weight loss or non-weight loss dietitians. And I've had so many, honestly, dietitians say very unkind things to me about what I do as a dietitian or tell me that weight loss surgery is barbaric and it's a terrible thing and nobody should do it. And it's all these complication rates. And all I can think about when I hear those two things, there's two things I think. One, you are very misinformed and are not understanding the research or the statistics that I can go over. But number two, the only thing I hear when another person, especially another person in the medical field says those things to me is you didn't deserve a chance at a healthy life. You didn't deserve to have the life that you get to live now. And I know that's not actually true, but that's how I perceive it. And I know that's how other bariatric patients perceive it because so many people don't have the support of their family, don't have the support of their friends, don't have a support system at all where they're told, well, if you just ate better and exercised, you'd lose weight. Like, why don't you just try harder? Um, have you tried dieting and exercise before? And it's those are honestly the most ignorant statements because I don't bariatric patients typically have exhausted every other option (laughs) and it's not for lack of trying or wanting to try it's after going through so many failed attempts is usually the last resort and honestly I hate that I hate that we have to use the gold standard for weight loss approaches in obesity as a last resort why are we using the most effective form of weight loss For those who struggle with obesity, which I think people forget that morbid obesity and obesity in itself is a very complex disease. (laughs) And just like other diseases, it deserves the attention and treatment. And so why are we giving, why aren't we giving people with obesity the gold standard treatment more readily? Why are we making them jump through these hoops and hurdles if we know that this can help? Because 98% (laughs) of traditional dieting attempts fail. I think both of you probably heard that before. Traditional diet and exercise usually quote fails or most people do not keep the weight off. Whereas with weight loss surgery, statistically speaking, 
it doesn't really matter which weight loss surgery you have, but just collectively, statistically speaking, people will lose anywhere from 60 to 77% of their excess weight. And long-term beyond five years will keep off 50 to 60%. So there's always a 10 to 17% give or take like rebound weight. And that's anticipated. But the fact that people keep off 50 to 60% of their excess weight, there's an 85% success rate within that. So 85% of people who have weight loss surgery are likely to keep most of their weight off long-term. So again, why are we telling people you should just have more willpower? You should just try harder. You should just do another diet. And when we have this amazing tool, that's the piece that I get very passionate about. I did not know those numbers. That is so interesting. I mean, I obviously know that it's a great tool to utilize. We should utilize it more. Insurance thinks that covering it sometimes, which is also a whole other battle to fight. But that is a pretty jarring number that that's that successful for most people. And the other piece I always hear is, well, it's so dangerous. It's, it's so, you know, and you always see, especially depending on what platform you're on, if you're on like a Facebook group or whatever, it's always, well, I know someone who gained all of their weight back and it didn't work or, oh, I know someone and they had such terrible complications. And I am not in any capacity minimizing people's complications because that is a very real potential consequence. However, you go through all of this pre-surgical you know, evaluation so that you can make sure you're a good candidate. And the risks, the benefits have to outweigh the risk factors. And statistically speaking, less than 4% of people who have weight loss surgery develop severe complications. The complication rate is very low in comparison to other surgeries. And I believe the like mortality rate for those going through bariatric surgery is less than, it's less than 2%. It's like one point, I have it in here somewhere. It's like 1% of people, which again, not minimizing anyone who's been through a terrible experience, but that is so much lower than other surgeries. So the risk factors for bariatric surgery are so much lower than that of the, of so many other surgeries. And it's, proven to be so effective for treating obesity. I don't know why (laughs) it's still seen as this bottom barrel last resort option. Well, Jamie, I also want to talk a little bit about how, like what you said about there being kind of like a split in the dietetics world, because I think you're totally right. And even I myself kind of struggle with this because I work from eight to five as a weight loss dietitian. And then from five to nine, I work as an intuitive eating, like anti-diet dietitian. Mm -hmm. So I have my own little internal struggle with this. And I know that it is very black and white and split down down the middle. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on like that split a little bit more. I think the split has gotten very heated and I don't think that that's necessary because I think, I think where this comes from is when there's two different extremes, because you can absolutely be anti-diet, anti-diet culture, anti, you know, fad diet, which I am, (laughs) um, with the exception, it is a bit confusing because there is such a strict post-op diet for bariatric dietitians. And that is for medical necessity. It does not mean that we can't have quote, normal foods or meals. The, the, one of the things my dietitian said to me when I was going through surgery is the goal of your weight loss surgery is not to eat as little as possible for as long as possible. The goal is to get back to normal, healthful portions and have a normal, healthful diet with all nutrients. The reason the diet is so restricted in the beginning is because most people for the first 
six months are eating somewhere between like three and four ounces for six months to a year. Most people are eating like four to six ounces. And for a year plus people can usually eat eight to 12 ounces, which comes out roughly to a cup to a cup and a half of food at a time lifelong. But once you're at that point, you should be adding more food into that first few months when your restriction is super tight. It needs to be protein, not because carbs are bad, not because we're restricting. It's because we need to make sure we're getting enough protein to avoid malnutrition. And I realize that certain, you know, anti-diet dietitians strongly are against this. However, we have to weigh the risks and the benefits and I think uh, this is my personal opinion and we can, we can get into it and go back and forth if you want, but I think it's irresponsible as dietitians to not support our clients in the things that they desire and need to be healthy because, you know, especially when we're talking about like the Hayes movement and health at every size, it's that movement was never meant for people who had BMIs above 40, right? So when you have someone with a 60 plus BMI and you tell them, you know, have some joyful movement in your day. Well, when you're that heavy, and I know because I've been there, getting out of bed doesn't feel good. So how are we supposed to find joy in movement? You know, one of my friends that I made in the bariatric community who had surgery as well, she's an amazing, I think she was over 500 pounds at one point. And when she started college, she had to drop out of college because one, they didn't have desks that she was able to sit in and she couldn't make it around campus or up the stairs. So, you know, when you have people who are dealing with such extreme morbid obesity to say, just, you know, ha- you know, find joyful movement and eat foods that taste good and are satisfying to you. But it's such a foreign concept. And that's because when these movements were developed, people like us weren't taken into consideration, or at least not fully. So it's why the, some of those concepts just don't apply or make as much sense. Now, weight loss is not inherently bad. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are submitting to diet culture or doing this horrible restrictive thing. For so many of us, losing weight is such an incredible thing because like, I can tell you that I can, like, I almost like cry, like thinking about it because I felt so restricted in my body for so long. I couldn't move in the ways I wanted to. And when I was about three months post-op, I think I was down about 40 pounds or so. I started running for the first time. So I'm going to start by jogging and I was actually able to do it after just like 40 pounds. And as I kept losing, I was able to run and To me, it felt like flying. I had never felt so free because when you go from getting out of breath and like sweating and winded from taking five steps to being able to run for a mile, it's a whole new world opens up. And that's one of the things I have a lot of my clients focus on in the bariatric community is the non-scale victories. Like I try and say like, you know, we have these weight loss goals, like obviously we're here because we want to lose weight, but what are the other things that would like, what's our why? What would mean the world to you? For me, I'm a... (laughs) I'm, I'm a Disney adult. Like I'm a huge Disney person. Like that's, that's who I am. Um, <laughs> I could show you my office. I've got like hidden Mickey's everywhere. Um, but for me, like going to Disney world is the biggest win of my life. I can fit on an airplane. I don't need a seat belly center. I can walk down like the center aisle of the airplane and not be bumping into people. I can make it through the airport, lugging my suitcase. I can walk in Disney world all day long and not get out of breath or have my knees hurt or have to stop. I can go to Disney and enjoy the foods that I love, but not feel like that's the only focus. I can fit on the rides. I can go to the merchandise shop and get a sweatshirt and find one that fits. And these are the simple joys in life that people who struggle with obesity don't get to have. And I think it's invalidating to tell them that they shouldn't lose weight. 
we shouldn't do it in a restrictive, really unhealthy way. We should probably do it in a really mindful, realistic way for sure. And we shouldn't be excluding food groups long-term. And absolutely, we should be adding foods back in and working to have balanced plates and, you know, work through those potential trigger foods and all of that, like all of it. But it's not one or the other to me, because I think it's absolutely possible to have an intuitive, really healthy approach to this but still have weight loss goals. And I think both can be okay. And I feel like our field of dietetics is just keeps going to bat with this. And I don't understand why it has to be one or the other. And I, I, again, I don't claim to be an intuitive eating dietitian. One of the terms I use with my community and in my programs, instead of intuitive eating is I use the term intentional eating. And that seems to really resonate with the women I work with, because again, you're relearning these hunger cues there's nothing really intuitive about having your stomach removed and having to relearn these things. Like it feels very unnatural, but I try and tell everyone like, let's eat with intention. Okay. You're hungry. Let's honor that. If you are hungry, I want you to eat. I don't care if you ate 45 minutes ago, if you're hungry again, it means you need to eat. So let's take a plate. Like one of my rules is whatever you have put it on a plate. So you're being aware of it. Make sure that we're not mindlessly grazing. Make sure that you're enjoy, like maximizing your eating experience and having foods that you love. Knowing that we have special needs as a bariatric population, we need to hit our protein. Let's make half of our plate protein. Again, the, the like the meal plate like method within the bariatric community is a little bit different because we need that focus on protein, but let's have protein. Okay, you got your protein. Let's add something with fiber, like a fruit or a veggie. Okay, you had your protein and you were able to eat your you know, fruit or veggie. Let's add a little bit of starch or carb on there too. Let's sit there and take our time with our meal. Let's enjoy it. I like to tell my clients like, be a little bougie with your meals, like be a little picky, like what would be like fancy and delicious and how do you want to plate it and make it like a whole experience? And I tell them you should enjoy eating. It's okay to enjoy eating. You should enjoy eating. It's going to be a part of our life forever. How can we make it work long-term? And this is where I think the principles of, at least some of the principles of intuitive eating do come into play after surgery. It's not like, oh, well, we're just on this strict diet and can never have anything again. And that's what I try and get through to my clients too, is the post-op diet is there for a reason and it's out of medical necessity. But over time, you should slowly be added. And that's what I help people do is slowly add things back in. We're not here to do keto. We're not here to be on this restrictive, teeny tiny portion diet forever. You should be able to have a plate of food and enjoy it and move on with your day and not obsess over it. So that's where I think the concepts from both like worlds can come together. And I, I think it's when it, when it turns, when the conversation turns to not anti-diet, but anti-weight loss is where I just don't agree with it. And that's why. Yes. That was a very refreshing perspective because you're so right. It's like weight loss is good or weight loss is bad. And no one ever wants to talk about that middle part where like it's dependent on the patient or the client. That's what matters the most. Um, if they maybe would feel their best and be their healthiest self with, with weight loss, we want to do that in the best way we can, of course, but if that's their goal, we need to support them in that and, you know, do it in the right way. And one of the things I'm a really big advocate for, and I talk about a lot is especially after weight loss surgery, your lowest weight is not always your best weight. So usually statistically what happens, and I kind of went over the numbers before we lose most of our weight and then gain a little bit back. It's normal and anticipated. If you look at like trends and like graph charts of like people losing weight, usually it's like, you'll lose, you'll lose, you'll lose. 
will rebound a little bit, which people tend to panic about, but that's okay. Usually if you're gaining a little bit, you need to gain a little bit. And then we kind of level off. And with that, like for myself, I am about right about 15 to 17 pounds up from my lowest weight. But guess what? I do CrossFit four days a week and I lift really heavy things and I go for runs and I've built up this like body composition and building like muscle mass. And I feel so much healthier than I ever have in my whole life. So that's also what I try and get through to the bariatric community is it's not just about like losing as much weight as possible or being as skinny as possible or any of those concepts. How can we be as healthy and what does that look like for us? And that's going to look different for every single person. And as dietitians, I think it's irresponsible to put our own agenda or viewpoints on what people should or shouldn't be doing. I feel like as a dietitian, it's my responsibility. If someone comes to me with a goal or a concern or wanting to do something, it's my job to present the evidence like, okay, if you do whatever it is you're going to do, this is the, the, these are the pros, these are the cons. How am I going to best support you and what's going to work for you? Um, Versus saying, well, I, because I've had so many people come to me and say like, yeah, I was working with a dietitian and she doesn't support weight loss. So I can't see her anymore. Or I, you know, I've been working with my dietitian on healing my relationship with food and probably more of an intuitive eating dietitian. And I told her I'm going to have weight loss surgery and she won't let me see her anymore because she disagrees with it. And I totally understand if that's outside of your wheelhouse and you don't feel comfortable, but I've had people say like, yeah, my dietitian was really mad at me. I've had people say my therapist was really mad at me. And that's where I feel like you know, dietitians and therapists alike should be figuring out how to support these people versus further shaming them for trying to get what I already explained is the gold standard for treating obesity. So it's, again, I'm in this, I feel like I'm kind of in this middle ground. And again, I see so many different aspects because of my profession and because of obviously my biased opinions, because of my personal experience with it. I feel like I'm struggling a lot with that too, is finding the middle ground because For one aspect I have, or in the past, during my internship and other dietetics experiences, I've worked with patients for weight loss and it was, it felt very, like there was a, there was a comorbidity side of it where for their health, they, to reduce risk of other diseases and whatnot. And also just from a quality of life standpoint, weight loss was a goal for them. Mm -hmm. And that was, it was very easy. I I don't want to say it was easy, but it was much more, um, I guess it was like easier to work with them because we knew kind of that goal straightforward. But then I have worked with a lot of weight loss just generally where it doesn't feel like that's where like the diet culture starts like playing with my head and I see in their head where it's like not a health related weight loss goal. It's a, I want to look the beauty standard. And that's where it starts like messing with my mind a little bit. Cause like everyone's, they can do whatever they want with their body. Um, but I feel like that's when I guess I struggle the most is when there's like almost the more so the fixation on kind of how you look rather than like non-scale victories or um, just like why we're kind of doing what we're doing overall. It's a a weird place to be and I don't know. I think there's also, and to kind of, I guess like to even challenge that, is it, you don't have to answer this, but is it bad to have like vanity goals alongside your weight loss? And again, I think that's a case by case 
basis. Obviously, as dietitians, if we have someone who is of, you know, normal quote, quote like normal weight, healthful weight, and they are obsessed with being skinny or to be a size two, then we want to screen for some like disordered eating behaviors and make sure that that's not coming into play. Mm-hmm. But you know, again, my my. So like I technically didn't have comorbidities when I was getting approved. I had PCOS, but I didn't have high blood. Like otherwise I was relatively healthy. I didn't have high blood pressure. I wasn't pre-diabetic. I didn't have sleep apnea. So technically if I was healthy, otherwise, would it be bad that at 275 pounds and five, four, that I wanted to lose weight to feel better and look better. And I guess as dietitians, is it our place to even tell someone that they should or shouldn't do that? And I like to encourage people if they're going to make healthy changes because they want to lose some weight. I always try and get them to make their goals from a place of abundance versus scarcity. So, okay, you really want to lose weight. You feel like you would feel your best losing weight. You want, you know, to accomplish this for X, Y, Z we're not going to focus on what we're not eating. We're not going to focus on cutting calories. We're not going to focus on, I don't have any of my clients count calories for the record, even my bariatric patients. I don't, I don't think that that's helpful for anyone. Um, what are we going to add to our plates? Are we going to add protein? Are we going to add veggies? Are we going to add fruits? Are we going to add more fiber? Are we going to add a snack during the day? So we're not grazing or binging at night and really focus on, on the habits piece of it. And if they feel better doing that and losing weight, is that a bad thing too? And this is where I think it's a, it really is a case by case point. And I don't feel like as dietitians we should tell someone what they should or shouldn't desire for their bodies. If they come to us and they're doing something that is hurting their bodies, or, you know, if losing weight is going to hurt them, then absolutely that is our responsibility to say, you know, I don't think that this is a good approach for you. But if someone is overweight or obese, and wants to lose weight and is looking for our guidance. Here's the other thing. We all know there are hundreds and thousands of health coaches and nutritionists online selling all sorts of garbage information that is hurting people. I would so much rather people come to dietitians if they want to lose weight so we can help them do it in the most healthful and sustainable way possible versus shaming them for even wanting it. And then they go to some Joe Schmo who is giving them macro plans, you know, that's really like my thought behind it too. We are the most credible people to be supporting people in that. That doesn't mean that we're ever, I never tell anyone you need to lose weight. Even my bariatric patients, I always ask them, what is your goal? The other thing I do with my clients is obviously most of them are coming to me for help either with weight loss within the first year or even regain. And in our first session, I tell them, listen, You've shared your weight loss goals with me. I know you have weight loss goals from here on out. I'm not asking you what your weight is. I will never and never have I ever asked my client on a call. What was your weigh in this week? Send me your weight log. What do you weigh? I don't do it. I tell them we have, we're going to take this number. We're going to kind of put it into the universe that you're trying to lose weight, but we cannot make the scale move. We, we have no control over that. What we do have control over is our habits, what we do and how we feel. So in my programs, I focus very heavily on mindset. I make all of them journal and do affirmations, which they resent me for in the beginning and thank me for later. And then we focus on, okay, well, what is your goal this week? Are we adding a snack? Are we increasing our protein? Are we increasing our movement? What are we you know, building upon? And then most times by really improving habits and routines, 
we see some weight loss and then people usually feel better and are really happy with their routine. And that's how I, I base it. I never say, oh, well, you should have lost weight. Like, you know, I think, I think there's almost this idea that quote, weight loss dietitians do that. <laughs> and that's not necessarily the case either. Me and my clients almost never actually, and I tell them, I'm like, if you have a win, if you are like really proud because you lost weight or you want to share it with me, or you're struggling with a stall and you want to, you know, look at that more closely, bring it to me. But I put that ball in your court. If you want to talk about your weight, you are free to do that on our calls, but by no means am I going to sit here and interrogate you about your weight. That's kind of how I approach it in my, in the clinic I work at too. Like I get their weight, I put it in their chart. It's just part of the process, but I don't bring it up unless they say, oh, I noticed that I'm down X amount of pounds. I'm like, cool. What's been going well for you to kind of help you with that. Um, but I don't say, oh my gosh, you're up two pounds from last month. What did you do wrong? Like, you're so right about what you keep saying about how it's patient client centered and like it's case to case too. Um, like Emily kind of said, if a client or patient comes and their weight loss goals are stemmed from disordered eating thoughts or a previous eating disorder or whatever it might be, then yeah, maybe weight loss shouldn't be something we really prioritize. Other ways to kind of go around that, I think. But even if their goal is weight loss, it's about how you approach it. And like you said too, I love how you pointed out also, there are plenty of people out there approaching it in the wrong way. Health coaches, nutritionists, personal trainers, um, and I would much rather have these people who have weight loss goals, see a dietitian too. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I just, I guess I just firmly believe that we should be supporting people in the things they want to accomplish in the best way possible. Cause I've had clients and I think also I use, I, I very heavily rely on motivational interviewing. That's like the foundation of everything I do. So if someone comes to me, because I've had this happen, like someone comes to me and says, I really want to do keto or I really want to do Weight Watchers. I get that a lot, even after weight loss surgery. I'm like, okay, well, why do you want to do it? And then they ask me my thoughts and I give them the pros and the cons and I let them choose. And more often than not, they choose the, the better choice, which is probably not to do the diet, <laughs> but we have to give them the education and the choice. Because I think when you're just told what to or not to do, it limits your ability to feel empowered in your habits and in your health going forward. So that's why I'm never going to tell someone like, no, you should never do that. Do I support that? Not particularly, but if my client came to me and was like, ah, Jamie, I'm doing this. I'm a hundred percent doing this. And this is why I would give them the pros and cons. And if they're like, nope, I, I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to do this anyways. Cause I've had this happen before. I'm like, okay, let's do it. And usually it's a check-in or two after a couple of weeks. And they're like, you were right. I probably shouldn't have done this. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's go back to what we were doing then. Um, because I think at a certain point, it, it, just, it takes people time to change their and to dismantle the diet culture that has been imposed on them, especially in the population I work with, because most people I work with, like myself, like I was over 200 pounds when I was nine years old. I struggled with morbid obesity from a very young age. So I had been put on every diet. I had been, you know, told like anytime I lost weight, it was raised, even if it was in an unhealthful way. So I think so many people are used to that. It's almost like they don't care how they get there. So it's our job as dietitians to start to get them to care how they get to that process. And I try and tell everyone, you have to fall in love with the journey because no number on the scale is going to make you happy. It might seem glamorous at first, 
But trust me when I say you need to fall in love with your day-to-day routines and trusting the process and the journey itself, because it's, if you're just looking for happiness, once you hit a number, you're never going to get there and it's going to be horribly disappointing. Let's start to fall in love with, you know, your morning routine. Let's fall in love with you making these meals that you like. Let's fall in love with the things that bring you joy, but you will continue to do it regardless of if the scale moves or not. I like that. I like that a lot. I try to take that approach too. Like the scale is one thing. Yeah, we'll watch it, see how it's going. But like, there's so much more to your health than just that one piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. Well, we had a list of myths that we really wanted you to cover and you did a wonderful job kind of going over most of them. I think the only one that we didn't get too much into, and I guess actually we kind of just did a little bit, but one big myth that people often either hear or maybe say um, is that bariatric surgery is a cosmetic procedure. And I want to go over that last one real quick. What are your thoughts on that myth? No, <laughs> it's not a cosmetic procedure at all. It is, again, obesity is a disease, a complicated disease. And bariatric surgery is a surgery that treats that disease. Can it bring you know, cosmetic, I can't even say that, I guess. Like, I I mean, you lose weight, which does show in your appearance for sure, but it's not a cosmetic surgery in and of itself. Um, It really is. And I mean, I can go over different statistics here about how it reduces your rate for like diabetes and all of these things. Like it, it really truly helps people improve their health and improve like their quality of life which cosmetic procedures really don't do that. (laughs) Debunked. Yes. (laughs) I think I really just like our like general discussion about how it's like more of like almost the, um, like what you were talking about with like the pre-op, post-op diets and whatnot. Like if someone had celiac, they'd be like on a gluten-free diet. Like Mm -hmm. there's, specific reasons for like why and like the like origins of keto they were like it was developed around like more so like pediatrics with epilepsy like there's reasons why kind of these tools were developed it's not just surface level right and you know, back to, and I know I had mentioned, like, I didn't have like diabetes and I was generally pretty healthy going into my surgery, but I did have PCOS, which I was told from the time I was diagnosed at 14, again, I was over 200 pounds at the time I was nine. It was a struggle. I was told at 14 years old, you're probably not going to be able to have kids because of this. And they, and it's true. People with PCOS struggle with infertility and the way I was, and with the way my PCOS symptoms were, there was no way that was even possible for me. And one of the only things that really helps with PCOS specifically, or anyone who has different hormone imbalances, because again, obesity is a disease. It's not like it's this choice all the time that people are just lazy and not trying. There is usually a reason why we struggle to lose weight or why, you know, we have these issues. And with PCOS specifically, one of the only things that improves symptoms is weight loss. But how do you do that when your body is so strongly working against you? One of the things we didn't touch on, and I could go on a whole rant, so cut me off if you need to. But one of the reasons bariatric surgery works as well as it does is it's not just restricting your portions. This is the piece people forget. I almost forgot to mention it. It is a true metabolic surgery because it truly changes your hormonal makeup. 
whether you've had your stomach bypassed or removed ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone is removed. And with that hormone being removed, there's kind of like a cascade effect with like other hormones that start to function differently, especially if you struggle with like insulin resistance, like all your hormonal makeup changes, which is why people who have tried their whole life to lose weight. And even people who had done small portions or low calorie diets haven't lost before and are now suddenly losing weight. And it's like their hormones are becoming improved and more, you know, hormone levels improved. Like my, I've gone back to my endocrinologist, all my hormones are in normal ranges now. And hopefully theoretically, once the time comes, like I'll be able to have kids now and before I couldn't. And this is again, why I'm so passionate about this. Cause when I hear that people say that one weight loss is bad or two, you shouldn't be losing weight or that bariatric surgery is barbaric personally, because it has such a personal tie to me. What I hear is I didn't deserve this life. I didn't deserve a chance to correct my PCOS or improve it so that I could have kids. I didn't deserve to be able to go for runs and feel free in my body. I didn't deserve to get to go to Disney and walk around all day and buy a sweatshirt at the shop. And I know that's not what people are saying. I know people don't realize that, but personally, that's how I feel when I hear people say that weight loss is bad or that we shouldn't desire or want it. Because unless I feel very strongly, that unless you have been in that position of being severely obese, to the point that you qualify for weight loss surgery, how can you tell someone that losing weight wouldn't be healthy for them? It was very healthy for me in so many ways. And the fact that now, if I decide to start a family soon, I have that ability, at least I know I have a fighting chance is huge. Yeah. Again, case by case. And I like how you mentioned the hormone changes too. And that again, proves the point that it's not just cosmetic. Um, That wouldn't affect your hormones if it was, you know? No, again, well, it's, it's complicated. It's a, it's a kind of, again, it's kind of a taboo topic yeah. that makes people uncomfortable. I'm a very strong, and I, I would never just tell people, oh yeah, like don't have surgery. It's a huge life change. A huge lifestyle change comes with a lot of responsibility and relearning things. But if you feel like you're ready for that, like you could use the tool. I just want more people to know and be aware of what the surgery is and how it could potentially help them so they can go talk to their doctor and they can go talk to their dietitian about it to see if it's an option. Yeah. A tool in the toolbox is what I always tell them. Absolutely. That is about all we have to say on this topic, Jamie. So if you could really just sum it up or provide any final topics or any thoughts on this topic, that would be wonderful. Um, well, I'm just really grateful that you had me on. So thank you again for having me. Um, like I said, bari- bariatric surgery is not going to just solve all of your problems. It doesn't mean that you wake up one day and are suddenly happy because you lost weight. It takes a lot of hard work. It's not this cheating the system easy way out. You still have to put the work in day in and day out and work on your you know, mental hurdles and coping mechanisms and finding new routines. But if you think that you could benefit from it. I, I want to be that resource. That's why I have all the resources on my page and I talk about it and I'm such a strong advocate for it in my day-to-day life. And honestly, like I tell everyone I know or meet like, oh yeah, I had weight loss surgery because I'm trying to normalize it. I want it to be this more normalized and just ex- thing that's accepted by society versus this shameful thing we keep in the dark. Yeah. And we so appreciate you sharing that perspective because I personally myself get kind of bogged down in the anti-diet, anti-weight loss space sometimes. And it's just, it's so important to have both perspectives and be open-minded when it comes to client care. Like we just keep saying this whole episode, like that's what matters most is the client or the patient. Yep. And you can absolutely apply 
anti-diet and intuitive eating principles to bariatric lifestyles. They don't, they're not mutually exclusive from one another. Yes, exactly. Not black and white. Well, we like to wrap up our episodes with guests and with ourselves too, actually, but with a bonus question, kind of a little mental release from sometimes some heavy conversations that we have with people. Um, so today's bonus question, we let our guests go first, Jamie, is what is the best PB and J combo? And by that, I kind of mean like chunky or smooth peanut butter, what kind of bread, what kind of jelly, what are, what's your ideal PB and J? Okay. I have to admit, I kind of agonized over this question when I first read it. <laughs> I was like, this is a really hard choice because I really love peanut butter and jelly. Um, traditional white bread with smooth, skippy peanut butter and grape jelly for me. That's classic. So good. Emily, what are your thoughts? So good. I am, I feel like I like chunky peanut butter Mm -hmm. just because I like the crunch, but from a bread perspective, I am not picky. I've always eaten it on like the whole wheat bread because that's all my parents had ever bought. So I feel like that's all I've ever known. But I feel like it might be good on sourdough. I'm a big sourdough fan. Um, from a jelly perspective, any berry. Oh, you're a berry, berry gal. Jelly. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Um, Jamie, every episode, I am like the worst about making like hard decisions like this. So I always just like talk for 20 minutes about stupid stuff. Um, so let's let me do that real quick. Um, I also was raised in a home where like you got the seedy like wheat bread. But as an adult who makes her own food choices, I love me some PB&J on white bread. So I'm with you on that one. Um, and I feel like I have to do my mom justice right now because she'd be like, but Jamie, I always bought Ezekiel bread. We uh-huh. always had Ezekiel bread in the house. And for someone who grew up with morbid obesity, you wouldn't think that'd be the case, but she always had such like, you know, not always organic, but like really like healthful like products in the house and we almost never had white bread which is part mm-hmm. of the thing but I'm like ooh but like a good peanut butter <laughs> also pro tip if you've never had this you gotta take Ritz crackers with peanut butter and put a little jelly on top for a snack. Ooh, ooh that sounds really good. It's really good. That does sound good. <laughs> You're welcome. Um I will add that the PB and PB and J toasted that's really good too. Adds like a whole new layer of textures. Yep. Absolutely. So good. Um, I think I, I might contradict myself. I think we did an episode before we talked about our favorite peanut butter type preference uh, back in the day. And I forget mm-hmm. what I said, but I think I'm going to go with creamy in this day and age for a PB and J sandwich. <laughs> My taste changed like every day. Um, and then jelly, uh, I'm going to have to go with like a strawberry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There's just okay. so many. I know I will eat any PB and J that's given to me. So let's just, put, let's just make that clear. Yeah. So Jamie, we always like ending the episode with kind of giving you the space to share where our listeners can find you. And kind of, this is your time to share like any social media uh, accounts, any websites. This is really, you can kind of promote whatever you want right Thank now. You. Um, so if you want to find me, I'm most active on my Instagram page. I do have a TikTok also that I'm trying to <laughs> be better about posting on, but um, primarily I'm on Instagram. I'm the sleeved dietitian. 
I also have a program that is listed on my Instagram page. I have a membership. It's called The Tribe. It's The Real Insights of Bariatric Eating. It's an acronym. And it's a membership program. This is the primary service I offer. I still do take one-on-one clients, but most of my um, clients are in my membership program at this point, which it's a combination of self-paced videos and modules with all of my resources, my full approach to nutrition after weight loss surgery. Um, we have a And what's so great about this community that I've created is when it is that safe space for bariatric patients to go to get the support and the guidance. And all of the women who helped me run this program have also had weight loss surgery and are credentialed as well. So we have personal trainers who had weight loss surgery who give workout videos. We have, we do guest experts every month. We do a new topic every month. And then every single month we put out a calendar of different support groups. We have 10 different support group leaders. We have um, a therapist, psychologist, a health coach, a postpartum doula, all of whom have had weight loss surgery and they help me lead. We have two dietitians in there who um, one had weight loss surgery as well. And we all lead support groups every month. So every month we have anywhere from 20 to 30 live support groups via Zoom. So if anyone is listening and needs more support on their bariatric journey, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can always DM me or email me. And um, I just hope that my, my page is always that resource in this community. That's so awesome. We will share links below to all those different things so you guys can find them. Um, Well, thank you again, Jamie, so much for being on today. We love, love, love having you on to talk about this. It's a very, I think, nuanced topic sometimes. This is a good episode for our listeners. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you. All right. right, Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in on this episode of the Upbeat Dietitians with your host, Emily Krause and Hannah Thompson. We appreciate you all so much for continuing to support us. In order to support us and sustain the success of this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. If you'd like to provide us feedback for future episodes and guest stars, follow us on Instagram at the Upbeat Dietitians. Lastly, you can show us support by providing a monthly donation using the link at the end of our bio. Once again, thank you so much for listening today and stay tuned next Wednesday for a new episode. Until then, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.